Ice-T. Get to the point. Oh, the rip compels me. Old fashioned, aren't I? I call him Bon Jovi every metal, you know. Bloody hell, what's, they were adding everybody in under the category of every metal. Black Sabbath wasn't a band that you got a guy from Newcastle, a guy from London, and a guy from Birmingham who was constructed. We were four local guys that went, I went to the same school as Tony, and we conquered the fucking world. Wait till the end, wait until it's finished, boy, you'll love it. It wasn't my job to try to save this band, it seemed more like it was their job to try to destroy it. Stand up something more too, did you? Ozzy fucking Osborne. Sabbath, please, Sabbath. Time to kiss that rainbow goodbye. Welcome to Sabbath Bloody Podcast, the sabography for the masses. Today, I'm going to try and give you some purpose, an album you probably didn't even know you needed in your life. Well, do you really need it? We'll find out today, 1994's Cross Purposes. We're motoring through the 90s here, and it's been great so far, I'm not going to lie. This is the kind of hard rock that I grew up on, so just sonically, these albums feel much more comfortable to me than the 80s stuff. It's kind of 70s through my dad and 90s through my Discman, my musical genetic makeup, if that makes sense to you. So sorry to all the 80s purists out there if I take the piss out of your classic metal and your AOR sounding stuff, that real lush, saturated thing just doesn't connect with me. I mean, I've been growing to appreciate it through the sabs here, so I guess that's something, right? but it always comes down to your own experiences. And anyway, when we last heard from our lads, the Sabs did the Costa Mensa farewell spot for Ozzy's No More Tours, the grand finale, having the original Sab 4 reunited for an encore. But at what cost was it, right? Dio fucking walked, refusing to open for that clown Ozzy, in his own words, not mine. Then shortly after that, Vinny Apice followed suit, joining Ronnie and reforming Dio. And they went on to do some fucking great albums, which... Talk about later, probably, but thus ended the dehumanizer Dio Sabbath reunion almost as quickly as it began. But immediately after that farewell gig for the Prince of Darkness, there were more big time rumors in the following months that the original lineup was just going to carry on from there. Ozzy, Iomi, Geezer, Bill. Here's a quote from Nibby actually on how close this reunion came to happening, way back at the beginning of 1993, even. Nibby says, We worked for nine months on this project. After the Costa Mansa shows, we had our mind on this for at least nine months. We had conversations with Ozzy by phone, and our managers were all in touch. Many dates had already been scheduled, but Ozzy decided not to carry on with the project. So there you go. That's how Nibby recounts the event. Let's play a clip here from Iomi. He kind of reinforces those facts. There was a thing going on for quite a long time, constant. uh, I mean, I was talking to Ozzy really on a day-to-day basis after that, and... uh, and we were talking of it was Ozzy's, Ozzy's office and I and his, his ideas to put to to ask us if we put the lineup back together again. And we said, well, yeah, it'd be, we could certainly try it and do a, a couple of weeks. The idea was to do two or three weeks of big stadium dates. And um, so we said, we, yeah, we'd, we'd do it. And from that, of course, it got more involved. And you got management. Four, each one of us had got a manager, and that's four managers. And then we got four different record companies. So it was a bloody nightmare, and then each one of us has got a liar. So, you know, so we had, we had all these people all arguing about what we want. And, of course, it turns out in the end of the day, it was Ozzy's... Um, Ozzy wanted more money than anybody else, and um, it got silly. It got into a financial thing as opposed to just let's get out and do it and, and, and split it, you know. 
And uh, so, uh, with all these agree things going backwards and forwards, nobody would agree on anything. And then after eight months of negotiations, finally we all agreed, or they all agreed, whoever they are. <laughs> and um, and then um, then Ozzy said he didn't want to do it. So uh, and Bill Ward, Geezer Butler, and myself had signed the deal, signed the contract, and sent it to Ozzy. Uh, his office and uh, they, they pulled out so that was it so there you go we of course know from last episode that tony boy was in a little bit of deep shit around that time too with the child support dodging shit that landed him in the slammer so the whole reunion was not at the forefront of his mind because of that whole thing he actually needed to go collect his personal belongings right after the show from the clink and he kind of hid in southern florida for a little bit because he wasn't able to travel given his criminal record now <laughs> either way what became of these reunion rumors? Well, fucking nothing right now anyway. We just lost a mighty deal for basically nothing. As Ozzy was also back to his solo stuff pretty quickly and his Retirement Sucks tour was not long after. So let's flash forward a little here to the next stage of Black Sabbath proper. Jumping ahead to 1993, Iommi and Butler and the ever-faithful Jeff Nichols, of course, were all that remained in the camp. And so all too predictably, they turned to Tony the Cat Martin to revive his role as the vocal stopgap of Black Sabbath, and something that he seemed only too eager to do, as his solo album had kind of failed to make an impact. And so for the drum slot, although Iommi claims to have pursued Cozy right away too, Powell by this point was rolling with Iommi's best buddy, Brian May. He didn't have to look very far to find another drummer as one came to him. Enter Bobby Rondinelli whose previous claim to fame included stints in the BOC, Rainbow. And Bobby himself actually explains here in an interview that he was a huge Sabbath fan himself. Bobby says this in an interview with Joel McIver. I played with Doro for a while, and her tour manager, Robert Gambino, used to work for Sabbath. I told Robert that I really liked them and that it would be something that I would really like to do. And one day I got the call from Gambino telling me that Sabbath was looking for a drummer. I called Iomi. His wife answered the phone, and I introduced myself. I said, I heard Sabbath is looking for a drummer, and I'd love to check it out. About ten minutes later, Iomi calls and says, Actually, your name was on our list. I was going to get in touch with you. We talked for about an hour. We had a few more conversations, and he said, Do you want to join the band? You know, with them, you're either in the band or you're not. He said, Do you like to jam? Because Tony likes to play off the cuff, and I love that stuff. I was weaned on that kind of music, Cream and the freeform bands like that. We hit it off and that was it. The first time we jammed was in a house in Henley and Arden near Birmingham. There was this house that the band rehearsed at and I stayed there. All right, so it was now Martin, Iommi, Butler, Nichols, and Rondinelli. As mentioned there, they set up camp in Henley House just outside of Birmingham and they started rehearsing some new material. And then Leif Masses, the engineer on Dehumanizer, he also got signed on to kind of produce the next one. So they rolled it back into the now familiar grounds of Rockfield Studios in Wales. That just kind of becomes Sabbath's home base for recording around this time. And well, the new songs were ready by the summer of 1993. Quick and painless. Much more smooth than the Dehumanizer process. Let's hear from Iomi here again. I think we've gone as far as we could go with that lineup. It wasn't... It it took like two years, over a period of two years, to do that last album with him, so... Um, I think what we've got now is is, uh, is the best thing we've got, you know. It's, it's easy to... We can work, we've got a great relationship, and uh, music comes easy, you know. It wasn't coming that easy with, with Ronnie. 
I think sound-wise, we've done it probably easier than we ever have. We just walked in and, and uh, just got a sound and just played. It wasn't so much we went in deeply to try and get different sounds. I think it was very, it was very natural on this album. So the creative process was clean, but leading into the record and even upon its release, because all this fucking reunion bullshit buzz and add the fact that two of the original members were together now, Geezer and Iomi and Sabbath, all the press kind of leaned everything towards the good old days. Instead of paying attention to the great work that was going on in this album that they were making, here's Tony Martin himself when asked about how the new stuff stacks up against the Aussie era stuff. No comparison. I mean, the, the Aussie lineup is the original classic lineup. And we, this lineup doesn't attempt in any way to copy that that band, the original Black Sabbath. They are both separate things and they're separate kinds of music. Although there are familiarities all the way through the thing. Obviously we have the original guitarist and bass player from that band. But um, the stuff we write is completely different. It's the next stage in Sabbath's history. You, know? you can look at it negatively and a lot of the press, the media has uh, taken it um, very negatively. You know, oh my God, they're changing again. You know, oh, another singer, oh, another drummer, you know, the whole thing. But you can also take it very positively. Um, all those influences and inputs to the band and the music and the songs has come up with some fantastically classic tracks. You know, I mean, the, the Heaven and Hell thing and the Headless Cross things, they wouldn't have happened if those people hadn't been there, you know. Here's another clip from Geezer here talking about how People have kind of treated him differently since Sabs exploded in the 70s and 80s. I think other people changed towards you. That's what I found out. And now a lot of friends be became jealous or turned around and asked me for money. And even though we were selling millions of albums, we still didn't, he hadn't seen any money yet because you have to you know, wait for the royalties and everything to come in. And the management problems. Management was getting most of the money that we were earning and stuff like that. So we didn't feel any different. It's just sort of, sort of you moved out of, say, the, the not very nice areas of Birmingham into an even worse area. <laughs> just, just, you know, you see the material things. Material, you, you change. You get buy a car and stuff like that, but you, I don't think you're changing yourself. Just beat the servants a bit more. <laughs> so there you go. Always good to hear Geezer's voice again on the show. Actually, Geezer Butler came up for the title for this album too, Cross Purposes. But other than that, Tony Martin was again given the pen and pad to kind of write the lyrics for the new tracks here. And he took kind of a real headlines news approach to everything. Let's hear from him one more time before we push the needle in. The way I look at it is that um, I don't necessarily think that they were particularly political they were definitely about real things that was happening at the time. And, and that's what I've done on this album, is chosen subjects, things that are happening today. But um, I think there's a, a thread of reality that goes through the whole Sabbath thing, you know, um, amongst all the uh, experiments and stuff that the guys have done with the music, there's also been this reality thing goes, goes through. Apart from the Ronnie James Dio period, where he did more of a fantasy type thing. Um, Apart from that, a lot of it's been real subjects, real things happening at real times, you know. War Pigs was about war and stuff. You can't say it was political, I tend to think it was more reality than that. And these lyrics on this album are really up to date, things that are happening today around the world, you know. All right. 
That's enough setup. Let's push the goddamn needle into this one. The opening track on Cross Purposes, not too shabby at all, I must say. This is one that's a lot of people's favorites from the album too, it seems. At least I hear it mentioned a lot when people talk about Cross Purposes, which isn't that often anyway, but Eyewitness is the opener. And I wouldn't say it's my favorite by any means, but I do love the chorus a lot. It hits with this fucking badass 90s groove at times, especially on the chorus. Martin sounds great too. He kind of tries some new shit on this record right from the onset, and I can appreciate that, as it's always been my note on his vocals in the 80s that they're too same-same and safe in his delivery. Well, here it's different-different. <laughs> He's definitely updating his stylings to fit in with some of the 90s trends as well. Just as Dio did on Dehumanizer, it's a more kind of aggressive approach to the vocals here. So yeah, Sabs has definitely arrived in the 90s proper, and I personally have no problem with that, but I could see why some of the more power metal leaning, like Rob Halford, Judas Priest lovers, and even the AOR crowd that loved Headless Cross, those fans would probably not like this direction they're taking. They might call sellout or whatever, but don't worry, they didn't cut their hair or anything. <laughs> I mean, Tony Martin has been losing his hair since day one, but <laughs> anyway, there's also a healthy helping of high Tony Martin singing parts on here too, and that lush AOR that you crave is in here as well. It's just, they've added some new flavors to it. And the classic stuff is in much smaller doses on cross purposes. Just as a whole, it's a fucking sonically diverse album. Almost to its detriment, as the album never really locks you in like Dehumanizer did. And in turn, it's not very memorable as a whole. But I really like it. Like, definitely more than Headless Cross, which is heralded as Martin's finest. I'd put this one up with Eternal Idol, just ahead of Tear, if you can believe that. And I know, I love my Tear too, but... Those two records just are so much more diverse and have bits of the classic stuff that I really love with the new stuff, you know? So it's perfect for a guy like me who's kind of a borderline Tony Martin fan. Let's check out the lyrics here for Eyewitness, though. I've heard it's been said that Martin lifted these themes, or at least the title, from a 1989 Harrison Ford flick called Witness, which is a film about an Amish kid who witnesses a homicide and then and fucking Han Solo has to go in and go full Amish and to protect him and in the process bang his Amish mother. <laughs> That's what I gathered from the trailer anyway. <laughs> I haven't seen the film. The lyrics don't seem to portray that plot at least. <laughs> so maybe it was just a title that Martin lifted. Here are the lyrics here. Across the desert of the burning dark, a darkness which illuminates you. There's a place where you've always wanted to be, whose pleasures always did escape you. It's always been so out of reach. Nothing so near has ever felt so far. Okay, let's actually push ahead on the lyrics here. It's pretty vague. Pilgrims of Sabocracy. <laughs> okay, now we're on brand. Sabocracy. It sounds like something I'd say. Sabocracy for the masses. <laughs> Is that even a word? Is Martin Jack and my punny dad style humor here? <laughs> I'll look it up later. Hear the hounds of heaven as they bark, as you drive into the darkness, in front the future, behind you history, caught alone in a dark night. You think, that's the way it's supposed to be. You don't believe your eyes, because all they see is lies. Alright. So maybe it is about being in a kind of Amish society, kind of sheltered from everything. But here's the damn chorus. <laughs> My major beef with Eyewitness actually is that it takes forever to get to the goddamn hook, because that's the best part of the song. Eyewitness, a time and place that never dies, still frozen in time. This darkness, the only place that I can hide. Eyewitness, a dream. 
Still not getting as much Amish murder story vibes in there, but let's move on. This is a great opening track anyway. So then track two is not bad either, on par at least with the opener, Cross of Thorns. This one's trying a little harder to hit that perfect balance of AOR and fucking doomy shit like they did so perfectly on tier your Edelmonde and your Valhalla even, but this one doesn't get into that realm for me. It's pretty forgettable as a whole. The clean part that Iomi plays is kind of boring as shit. It just sounds like a loop to me. I get bored easily, I guess. The ADD kicks in for me. And I, I don't really like Jeff's keys on here either. They're way too hot in the mix again. Those phony choir samples that he's serving up, they fucking suck. <laughs> Come on, Jeff, I know you got some badass tones loaded into that Casio of yours. This is just some tacky, bad samples in here. Cue up the ones that you used on E5150. That shimmery stuff, I, that was actually working really well with the heavy guitars. Martin's voice comes back more in line with the flavors that he usually brings. So fans of the Martin 80s stuff will probably dig this one a lot. Like I said, the song isn't bad, it's just kind of typical. Typical Martin era stuff, standard fare. So for me, the album's stronger tracks are the unique ones, the ones where they're moving forward, branching out of his comfort zone. I've heard that there's also an Irish connection to the writing of this song too, which is cool. I gotta mention that. Although it's kind of a slag on the Irish if you think about it. It's about a drunk Irishman mispronouncing a religious concept, which is something that's pretty standard Dublin pub fare around here. So the story that I've heard is that Martin was apparently shooting the shit with a couple of proper lads down at the pub, and one mentioned the title of the song, Cross of Thorns, probably half in the bag, meaning to say Crown of Thorns. But Martin obviously grasping for any lyrics at the time to ensure that Iomi doesn't send him packing again. He thought, Cross of Thorns, that sounds fucking cool. I'll keep it in my little idea bank, along with the plot to witness. <laughs> anyway, it just sounds like a Christian metal band name to me, the Cross of Thorns. All ages show at the youth hall, you know, that kind of shit. Actually, a lot of this record screams Christian metal fair to me, the cover art especially. But that's the Sabs, right? Bunch of good old Catholic boys blasting lines and invoking imagery of the Dark Lord. They never stray away from the religious iconography. The album cover I think is fucking shit though. The airbrushed kind of sexy angel with wings on fire. Even though it's been revealed that it's a straight lift of a Scorpions EP cover actually, it looks like something that you see in the rack with some fucking Evanescence records or something. You know, really bad Photoshop digital looking wings with flames. It's just a mess. And it might be my least favorite art direction that the band's ever done. It doesn't grab me. All that fucking stigmata reference in Cross of Thorns 2. It's boring. It's played out stuff, man. You should have given the book to Geezer, brother. <laughs> I actually have this theory that Geezer doesn't like working with Tony Martin. Like, he doesn't even want to go near him, it seems. The first round, when Martin was already in the band, he made sure that they booted him, got Dio in his place before he started writing lyrics and shit. And on the Cross Purposes album, it feels like Geezer is kind of trapped. Of all the Geezer albums, other than Heaven and Hell maybe, his presence is quite diminished here. You know, it doesn't have that fucking Geezer flavor, and it should. Okay, moving on to the next track then, because so far, it's an alright album. But this track is when things fucking pick up. Psychophobia. This one really fucking grew on me. And it's actually become probably my favorite cut from the album. The chorus especially, that time to kiss the rainbow goodbye. Like, <laughs> is it a dig at Ronnie? Maybe. <laughs> no, the theme of this one is actually David Crush, The whole fucking Waco, Texas cult thing, if you've ever heard of it, which was a compound with this gun-crazy cult 
that was raided by the FBI. And rather than give in, they had this huge fucking firefight, and eventually the whole compound got burnt down. And all the cult members, including the children and of the said David supporters, died in the flames. It's an insane event. And that it actually in turn incited the reasons behind more acts of terror. I urge you to research it yourself. There's a great four-part documentary called Waco, which I love. If that cult stuff interests you, check it out. I find it fascinating as hell. But the whole concept of this song, Psychophobia, is about the idea of getting brainwashed, you know? Here's some lyrics. Mortal eyes looking through veil of dreams, hypnotized in an ever-living soul with wings. You think you're God, but you never had control. You think you're loved, but there's no one there at all. The delivery on the chorus is what's fucking huge about this song, though. Like, that's the thing with Martin. He usually sinks right into those powerful tidal yells, you know? And I just get sick of that. So this one being called Psychophobia, never going, You got psychophobia in the chorus. <laughs> I just appreciate that at this point in my Martin journey. It's refreshing. And great lyrics here, too. My colors all ran dry. Now I see the world in black and white. It's too late now. It's time to kiss the rainbow goodbye. Those, the main riff is super raunchy, too. Kind of Stone Temple Pilots or I guess like Velvet Revolver. We get a lot of that kind of raunchy riffing from Iomi on this album. It's fucking great. It makes one think that they might have been kind of copping on what GNR was doing, but let's not forget the whole fucking Born Again album, Zero the Hero, that was done before Paradise City. And I think the decision goes to the Sabs on that one. And any claims of stealing riffs anyway. I mean, fuck, Iomi has been doing this fucking raunch stuff for years, pure badass riff lord here again on this album. And it never hurts having Geezer right there with him. They can't be beat when they're together. Rondinelli's playing is actually cool too. It's a lot different than Cozy or Apathy or Bill Ward for that matter, as far as your power drummers go, but it's very solid. Interesting time signatures throughout this one. It stutters in a great kind of intentional way, so you can tell he's commanding the kit proper. A little bit of that 80s big drum hangover from Bobby though too when you see him live. And that's what I prefer about Abbasi. He, he likes to go with a kind of stripped down kit. And the way he plays is far less time stamped than Rondinelli or even Cozy for that matter. Mine goes Nibby, Vinny, Cozy, Rondinelli. And Cozy was ahead of Vinny before, but after Dehumanizer, fuck that drum tone on there is killer. Tony Martin, on the other hand here, on this album and on the next track in particular, he's blatantly trying to get his voice into that 90s realm. And it's more apparent with a singer, of course. Cue the Lane Stanley, Jerry Cantrell, fucking droning harmony vocals on the next song, Virtual Death. A straight up Alice in Chains lift vocally. I can't defend the cat in the same way that I do defend Iomi's riffs. It's cool for one track to feed off what's hot in music. And Alice would have been huge at this point. It would have been on the fucking singles soundtrack, I think, by that point, with Wood. So there was no escaping that junky vibe creeping into some songs. So I give it a pass, but really, if they did the whole album like this, it might be fucking hacky, let's be honest. But Alice in Chains, they copped Sabbath style tenfold compared to what they're doing here. It's kind of cool. An artist so inspired by someone inspires the artist that inspired them, you know? It's fucking sneaky in the tail. I don't know what the good metaphor is for it, but anyway, virtual death is fucking cool in my books. And this is one that Geezer and Iomi really collaborated on, too. At least that's what I've heard. It starts kind of slow and doomy with just the bass, and stays slow and doomy with Iomi just kind of following Geezer. For the most part, Geezer wasn't into the album 
creatively, like I said, but he came up with a couple of great riff ideas, Virtual Death being one of them. He wasn't penning the lyrics like he should have been, but he did come up with the title of the album, and his his presence is felt here. It's just not as strong as it should be when you have Geezer in the band. Or Dehumanizer, Geezer is all over that shit. It's just been reported that Geezer didn't enjoy this cycle very much, and he regretted not leaving when Ronnie split. But we'll get into his dismay later down the road. Let's finish the track by track off here. There's still a few to go. The next three, really, or two, the next pair of songs are pretty bland and forgettable to me. First up is the worst of them. Hell, this might be the worst Sabbath track. (laughs) I'm serious, guys. Immaculate Deception, definitely the worst on this album. And I'd be hard pressed to find something more bland as far as the Sabbath track goes in their whole catalog. I mean, outside of some of the rehashing shit that they come up with Rick Rubin later, Immaculate Deception, Jesus, just the song alone is cringeworthy, I hate saying it. On repeat listens, this one has always been just a straight up skip for me. So you can go check out Immaculate Deception on your own time and deep dive into it. It doesn't catch me at all, so I'm just going to move on to the next one here, which is a straight up kind of Martin ballad on this record, which these things never send me, but if I look at it unbiasedly, it's no worse than No Stranger to Love or Feels Good to Me. I might like it a little more than both of those. The track's called Dying for Love, some kind of solid bluesy lead playing from Iomi too. If you're into that shit, you'll love this one. Let's look at the lyrics here, because try not to soak your panties on this one, because even though it's a pretty fucking song, a nice little ballady kind of feel, it's about the problems in former Yugoslavia, the armies and the refugees and the Muslim cleansing that went on there. So it's not a happy ballad to sing to your loved one or play at your first dance on your wedding. Can you hear the people sing their song? To tunes of glory they move as one. Refugees of liberation marching on. Sing your song, rock the nation, right of wrongs. When you take a life and steal its shadow, all that's left is humanity. It's getting closer, change is bound to come. There's someone out there holding the candles to the sun. Then an answer says that peace will come around. Stand in line, take your time, and be proud. All right, so there you go. In that way, I mean, Dying for Love is all right. It's just boring, I guess, musically. If you're in the mood, it works. And I like the lyrics. I like the fact that they're trying to do something kind of political there. Back to the really good tracks from Cross Purposes, though. Let's go back to Eden. Yeah, right away. The next track, you can see it's going to be that religious stuff again by the title. In the Garden of Eden, baby. There's still a few more of them in this vein, too. It kind of takes over the concept of the record. I mean, cross-purposes, crosses, religion. It's Martin's safe zone, too. Back to Eden is pretty strong, though. Once it gets going, it builds us out of the lull that Dying for Love put us in, and it sets us up for a nice close to the album. Theme-wise, do I really have to explain the whole Adam and Eve bullshit? No. (laughs) Let's go to the next song, too. One with a little more real-life themes, because that's a really cool thing about this album. And and this is a real fucking metal theme, too. Infanticide. (laughs) That's always fun to sing about, right? The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. This one was actually the fucking single, too, which is funny given the themes. Song starts out clean and reflective, but it's a dark as shit song. Check out these lyrics. Young life, too young, whose eyes are choking. Can't rest, can't sleep, for dreams to set you falling. Don't feel the hunger, can't drink no holy water. No light in those eyes, no place for dreams at all tonight. 
When the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that holds the knife, and the knife that cuts the cable kills the spark that feeds the life. That's a pretty fucking powerful, cool line there. No grave could be deep enough down in hell if we were able. The veils of life pushed aside by the hand that rocks the cradle. It's super dark shit. This song is actually about Nurse Beverly Allate, who is an English serial child killer, convicted of murdering four children and attempting to murder at least three other children. And you know me with this serial killer bullshit. I love diving into this. Beverly was a pretty nasty bitch, too. She administered large doses of insulin to at least two of her victims. And there was a large air bubble found in the body of the other. So she had obviously been tampering with the lions going into these kids. Police were unable to establish how the attacks were carried out. But in May of 1993, the Nottingham Crown Court sentenced her with 13 life sentences for her crimes against humanity. So... There you go. Lovely stuff for a hit single, right? (laughs) Jesus, lads. Musically, it is single material, though. The main riff on this one. That da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You got to declare. The power of the riff compels me. Yeah, the power of the riff is in this one. Another favorite cut of mine from this album is the next one. And this really drives home that this is the fucking newspaper. Another one that Martin ripped straight from the funny pages. The next track here is Cardinal Sin. Here I have a brief summary of the track here from Tony's book. He shouts out the track's relevance, really, in a post-Boston Globe spotlight world, I guess, where priests are not held to the unfallible level that they were, especially in Ireland, where it's taken folks a little longer to wise up to their humanity. (laughs) Tony writes, Cardinal Sin was a song about a Catholic priest from Ireland who had hid his love child for 21 years. That would be a very topical song right now with all the stuff that's been going on recently. The song isn't heavy-handed on fucking pedophilia shit or anything like that. That's just something that one's head would automatically go to nowadays. So a lot of the YouTubers that I've seen analyzing this song are quick to say that it's about priests fucking little boys, but it's not. I don't think the Sabs would ever be that bold to come out and do track directly like that. They're already under enough fucking scrutiny as it is for the satanic shit. The story is about a priest hiding the fact that he knocked up somebody when, of course, he was sworn to celibacy. Michael Cleary is the lad that it's based on. He was the high-profile case that they're referencing here, the Catholic priest from Ireland. He actually preached the importance of celibacy in the church while secretly fathering several children with his housekeeper, as he called her. So it's the hypocrisy of the clergy, really, or one questioning the moral high ground presented by the church. It's not necessarily the pedophilia that's going on there that they're commenting on. There are so many fucking negative effects that that whole dogmatic system has on these people being held to this higher standard like they can do no wrong. It's fucking bullshit. They're humans too, and they're dirtbags. <laughs> Just like the rest of us. And some of them are fucking vile and worse. So here's the lyrics anyway. Where do you go when the consequence takes over? Do you crawl to your corner and cry? Do you imagine that no one would notice? Just a secret to take when you die. All the world's watching you. Every tongue is screaming, sinner. How are your dreams? Do they claw at your sleep, making darkness a place you despise? Where is the God that once was your strength? Are you sure he was there from the start? Still scathing as all hell towards the men of the cloth here. Martin taking an interesting viewpoint in the context of the song. I don't know if it reflects his own views. It kind of just sounds like judgmental towards the priest's action in a kind of a righteous way even. Are they disturbing the priest again, or is he siding with the masses saying that this priest needs to be fucking lynched? (laughs) 
I don't really know with Tony Martin. I've heard that he was raised Catholic and stuff, but I don't really know if he's atheist at this point. Regardless of the execution of the themes being a little heavy-handed for the particular non-story that the Mike Cleary deal was to me, he was just a dude, and dudes like to fuck. Who cares what he preaches about? It's not like he was doing something really bad like some of the other ones. I do love the song, though. Musically, it's probably the most interesting integration of Jeff Nichols that we've gotten in a long time here. Just epic fucking cashmere stuff here. Cardinal Sin, go check it out and fucking turn it up, too. And then that brings us to the closer of the album, Evil Eye. I actually don't really care for this one either. The closing track is just another basic women are evil, Black Sabbath bullshit kind of thing. We've gotten a couple of times. So it's kind of a mediocre song at best, but there's a lot of buzz around this song, even to present day, because apparently there was another riffer involved in the song's conception. Mr. Edward Van Halen. That's right. Lita Ford isn't the only thing that the two riff lords shared. EVH wrote a song with Iommi. And let's just read from Iommi's book here for context on Evil Eyes creation. Like I said, I don't really like the song, but it's a full fucking yarn, so let me have a drink here first. Okay. Evil Eye was a track that we were working on when Van Halen were playing in the NEC in Birmingham. Eddie got in touch with me, and I said, we're rehearsing, and we're writing a new album. He wanted to get together, so I picked him up from the hotel in Birmingham, and we drove down to Henley and Arden, where we were rehearsing. We got him a guitar from the local music shop, one of his models. He had a jam and he played on Evil Eye. I played the riff and he played a great solo over it. Unfortunately, we didn't record it properly and our little tape recorder that we had never got the chance to hear it either. It was a funny day. Eddie said, don't you want any beers? Can I pick some beers up? I couldn't drink because I had to drive him back to the hotel, but we picked up a case of beer, got to the rehearsal place and he was legless by the time we left. But it was great to see him. And it was great for him to come over and have a play. Having a jam with Eddie and letting go a bit, it really gave everybody a boost. So there you go. And tons of people talk about how they think it's Eddie still on the actual track, but it's not. It's clearly Iommi's playing style throughout. And to further add to the lore of Evil Eye and EVH connection, just last year even, Tony Martin posted on his Facebook page that he had found the original cassette, the recording of Eddie's solo, and confirmed that he helped write Evil Eye. In the post, too, Martin went on to say that he's not able to share the recording due to the fact that he doesn't own the rights, though he hopes to find a way to release it along with a book and DVD someday so the full story can be told. <laughs> a bit of self-promotion there. I'd be stoked if Tony Martin comes out with a fucking book. He needs to, like a proper Iommi-style one. Write some of these wrongs. Let's just hope that that's a companion piece that comes out with the Forbidden remix that we've been promised. I'm getting closer to Forbidden, too. I was hoping that the fucking thing would be remixed by the time I was going to dissect it, but we'll see. Also, if you haven't picked up fucking Iron Man Tony's book yet, well, you really should. <laughs> I mean, I know you've heard most of it on here, but books are fucking cheap these days. And so with Evil Eye, that was cross-purposes as it was released. There was one bonus track as well, one called What's the Use? which is kind of an interesting track. It doesn't really go anywhere, but it's fast as shit if you like that kind of thing. Half Cooked, though, which explains why it didn't make it onto the LP, but that covers enough of the album here for today. Not the strongest offering in the grand scheme of things, but I very much enjoy Cross Purposes, especially as a 90s hard rock guy. It's leaning towards that more, so check out Cross Purposes, especially Psychophobia, because that fucking song rips. And Virtual Death is cool. Yeah, just give the whole thing a spin. It's great. Okay, so I guess we can get on the road with this one now. 
It is a funny story. I think those stories are kind of best in the caravan. So, for the first time in Sabbath history, the album was released simultaneously as the tour rolled out. February 8th, 1994, Sabbath starts off in the States, in Connecticut, with some heavy fucking hitters in the support slots here. First, you get Morbid Angel, so some legit fucking death metal there. And also the Mighty Motorhead. So this would have been a heaviest fuck tour to witness. And the band was back to playing fucking ballrooms and theaters. Smaller venues, which I also would appreciate. The first one is a club called The Sting. And there's a lot of dates here too. That and Toad's Palace or Toad's Place. <laughs> like they play the same fucking cycle for the next few records. Staying in the States, but here there's a lot of dates too. They stay in the States right through mid-March. Iomi writes in his little book about sharing the road with Lemmy. So I got to read some of this. Lemmy stuff is always great for the show. We're hardcore fucking Motorhead supporters here at Sabbath Bloody Podcast, are we not? Make sure you check out Motorhead Monthly too, that podcast. I've actually kind of lost the thread there. I have a couple of episodes that I need to catch up on, but those lads are great. So Tony writes in his book, Motorhead supported us in America. Their singer, Lemmy, is a real character. Of course, there's no food on the rider at all. It's only booze. You walk past their dressing room and there's nothing to eat, but there's all this wine and Jack Daniels and beer. They are the epitome of rock and roll, and it just goes on and on and on with them. I never forget seeing the guitar player, Phil Campbell, at the side of the stage once. He threw up, and the next minute he was on stage playing away. Core blimey. How do they do it? How do they cope with that? Their bodies must be indestructible. Lemmy is probably going to die on stage. I certainly don't see him settling down in some old people's home. He used to go into their tour bus and he'd get off in the same clothes the next day and on the stage as well. Motorhead. They just lived like gypsies, really. One funny story I heard about Lemmy. As he was playing, he said to the monitor guy, Can you hear this horrible sound coming out of my monitors? The bloke said no. And Lemmy went... Neither can I. Turn me up. <laughs> I love Lemmy. So Tony had some good crack there with the support axe on this swing, but apparently he wasn't digging what the cat was bringing this round. At least he chooses this chapter in his book to kind of start slagging Tony Martin. So we got to read this, right? One time in America during the Cross Purposes tour, his lack of stage presence and star quality, or whatever you want to call it, became painfully clear. Right in the middle of the show, Tony decided to run along the audience between the stage and the barriers holding the people back in the front. He jumped off the stage to start his run, and then the security guy grabbed him and tossed him out because he thought he was a fan. But I'm the singer. Yeah, right. (laughs) Things like this would never happen to Ozzy or Ronnie, but you couldn't complain about Tony's voice. That was just great. He'd get on and do the job. He never missed a show. Tony was a nice guy as well, and he stuck with it for 10 years. So there you go, a little bit of respect at the end, but he's definitely taking the piss out of Martin's stage presence. And so the U.S. swing goes well. Next, they decide to take Japan on. Five big proper gigs there. This must have gone over well, too, because Japan fucking eats metal for breakfast. They would have loved this Martin Rondinelli stuff, too. Back to that cheesy metal look. So those go off well. And then they swing back home to the U.K. for a few gigs, then a proper European one with new support in place, Godspell and Cathedral. I fucking love Cathedral. Check them out. Fucking wicked doom metal from the 90s. Great choice for an opener for Sabbath, too. Two solid months like that. No real cancellations or drama pop up here in the tour diary. Although, you can witness how smooth it went, really, because on the 13th of April, 1994, they recorded their Cross Purposes live video and album. 
Black Sabbath's only official live album with Tony Martin. It wasn't released until fucking 1995 with a CD and VHS kind of tape thing that's completely out of print now. But we have this wonderful thing called YouTube where copyright law only seems to affect fucking podcasts that don't make any money. <laughs> you can watch the whole fucking thing on there for free. And it's a cool set list. Let's have a look at it. Time Machine. So still some love for the dehumanizer stuff. Children of the Grave, Eyewitness is a new one that creeps in. Uh, the Mob Rules, Into the Void, Anomande, Black Sabbath, Neon Knights, Psychophobia. Thank Christ that's in there. you got to play that song live. The Wizard, Cross of Thorns, Symptom of the Universe, a drum solo, Into Headless Cross, Paranoid Heaven and Hell. And this is cool. So the Paranoid in Heaven and Hell to close the set. And then the encore is Iron Man and Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. That's cool. Holy fucking shit. I take that over seeing Paranoid before I start queuing to get out. It's a great DVD, too. I don't get why some people slag this concert. I think it's badass. Anyway, they continue through Europe from there. However, for whatever reason, Bobby Rondinelli leaves the band after the June 11th gig in Finland. There are rumors that Bobby was being a little bit of a diva on this European swing, demanding too much from management as far as the rock star perks come. And that was the reason why he was asked to leave, but he does return later, so it mustn't have been that bad of a deal. There wasn't any serious drama or anything. But the tour did go on. Here's a quote from Miami's book talking about who they brought in to take Bobby Rondinelli's spot. We were to finish the tour with a couple of shows in South America, and I was talking to Bill, and I said, we're doing South America next. He went, I'd love to play South America. Oh, you would want to do that with us then? Oh, yeah. Blimey. He said, <laughs> I only always write, blimey, just every, every paragraph. It's like a fucking punctuation point. He said, what do you want me to do, meet you there? He didn't know any of the songs with Tony Martin, so I said, no, you've got to come to England and rehearse. Oh, all right then. He came over, we rehearsed, and he was great on the old Sabbath stuff, of course, but he struggled a bit with newer songs like Headless Cross. It was Geezer, me, and Bill, so we almost had the whole lineup together. So we almost had the old lineup together, plus Tony Martin. Off to South America with Kiss and Slayer on the bill, as well as a few others. We got on the stage in front of something like 100,000 people, and the pressure was on. We got by, but at the end, in order to keep going, we ended up only doing songs like Iron Man and War Pigs, the stuff that Bill knew. <laughs> so there you go. Nibby's back. Three of the original four fucking Sabbath members. How Sabbath is this, dude? <laughs> Basically a reunion. At the end of the Cross Purposes World Tour, after the Monsters of Rocks gigs in South America that we just mentioned there, despite it seeming like things were getting closer and closer to that original Black Sabbath lineup, it's around this time that Geezer fucking walks with Bill following suit soon after. I don't really know where Nibby goes. He just kind of seems to appear and disappear at will. Even to this day, he's kind of the wild card. However, Geezer's departure can kind of be attributed to one single event, an album, actually. The Nativity in Black tribute album. You guys probably all know this one. It's a great fucking Sabbath tribute. I remember it being big shit when it came out. Covers from C.O.C., Ugly Kid, Faith No More, Sepultura's in there. Typo does their infamous gothic Black Sabbath rendition. Therapy from fucking Northern Ireland. White Zombie. It's a great project. I love this CD to this day, and I loved it as a youngster, too. However, the important point of contention here was a cover by the band The Bullring Brummies, 
which is actually a one-off kind of fake name for a group made up of Black Sabbaths, Geezer Butler, Bill Ward, and Rob Halford. According to Tony Iommi at the time, he was also intended to be on there. It was intended to be fucking Black Sabbath with Halford as the singer. They'd even laid all the tracks down for the song, and then the old label IRS intervened. They would not permit Iommi to be included, so he thought the project was dead when he mentioned this to the other lads. But they went ahead and did it. And now I've mentioned before that Geezer was managed by his wife, Gloria Butler, who'd also assumed kind of a role in Sabbath management at the time by association. Remember back at the Costa Mesa games when Tony was thrown in the slammer, it was Gloria Butler that was negotiating his release. So she was as much a Sab's handler as she was Geezer's handler. However, a riff was created when they proceeded with the whole Bullring Brummies cover with Scott Weinrich of The Obsessed replacing Iomi on the tracks. Upon discovering this, Iomi fired Gloria Butler from the Sabbath manager spot, prompting Geezer, of course, to side with his little Yoko Ono and quit Black Sabbath. Yet again, fucking spinal tap, anyone? I think he's right. There's something about this that's so black. It's like, how much more black could this be? And the answer is none. Geezer would go on to work with Ozzy again on his 1995 release, Osmosis, as well as his own project, Geezer, G-Z-R. And around this time, too, he quite publicly slammed Sabbath and Iomi after leaving, stating that he has no intention of ever playing with Black Sabbath again. So I guess that's where we'll leave it today. I expected to be disappointed with the Cross Purposes album after I'd fallen head over heels for the fucking Dehumanizer Dio reunion. I certainly thought I was done with Martin. I mean, I enjoyed P- Tear, but I felt like it kind of did its thing. I was much happier to move on to Dehumanizer and Dio again. But Cross Purposes really fucking surprised me. I'd say it's equal to Tear, if not better. I like the variety on it, too, because Tear was very focused, kind of one lane. Dehumanizer is very focused. It's amazing, but it's very focused. This one is kind of more interesting if you just pick it out and place tracks from it from time to time. But there's still one more 90s proper Black Sabbath record to go here. And there's also a couple of bonus tracks before the new millennium hits. Join me next time, won't you? It'll be a fucking 90s wrap-up of sorts. And the record that everyone hates. Forbidden. You fear me. <laughs> As always, Twitter, at SabbathBloodyPC. Email, SabbathBloodyPodcast at gmail.com. iTunes, subscribe, leave a review. And of course, Bog Blast, every last one of you.